The following program is presented by the HTM Podcast Network. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Robin Nelson with another edition of Wrestle Podcast. And my guest tonight is he is the son of Stu Hart, professional wrestler, promoter of Stampede Wrestling. Bruce Hart, how's it going? Nice to talk to you, Robin. I uh, hope you're all enduring and surviving this uh, pandemic or whatever, but uh, good to talk to you. It's great to talk to you, too, and I hope you're doing well over in uh, Canada as well. Yeah, all things considered, uh, relatively well. So. All right, let's get into this. Um, let's let's first talk a little bit about your father, Stu Hart. What were some great uh, memories of your father, Stu Hart, in the wrestling business? Um, it was funny. I uh, I've sort of known it. I've uh, been immersed in the wrestling business since uh, birth or whatever. So, but yeah, Stu was always. Uh, Kind of one of, I always heard a lot of fascinating things about Stu, and uh, he always seemed to live up to whatever I had heard, you know. So, but yeah, he he kind of came up the hard way in the business, and his history almost kind of goes back to the uh, almost the dawn of the business with. Uh, I think there was some old shooter named Jack Taylor who was kind of the main contemporary of Frank Gotch, who was kind of like considered by many the uh, the first iconic legend in wrestling. But my dad kind of got his start in the late 1920s, you know, kind of uh, up in Edmonton and. Uh, you know, he's introduced to it, you know, by a bunch of these old shooters up there and, uh, and still have a lot of respect for the business for him, you know, like a lot of other people. In those days, he was kind of, a, you know, a, you know a, a byproduct of the Great Depression, so he had a pretty rough time in the wrestling, almost it gave him a little bit of a sanctuary from from all of that and I think because of that he had he had tremendous respect for the business and I think it was uh, predicated by some of the people that launched him you know Jack Taylor as I mentioned and then I think my dad did a stretch in World War Two, and uh, you know he had already won the amateur Championship of Canada and all that. He was pretty uh, revered, you know, as a world class amateur. But uh, he went to New York right after the war in '45. Jack Taylor sent him out there and uh, hooked him up with a guy who had uh, been one of Taylor's proteges around 1910 or that vintage guy named Toots Mont, who at that time was the uh, major uh, player in the uh, what 
became the WWE. But I think a couple of his uh, understudies at that time were Jess McMahon and uh, Vince McMahon Sr. So, um, anyway, my dad kind of went down there and got his career launched in New York. And uh, he became a, you know, a pretty well respected worker in the New York territories, one of the top baby faces in that territory at the time. And, uh, and he went back to Western Canada. He had an opportunity to start up the promotion in 1948. By this time, he had already met my mother, who was uh, from Long Beach, New York. And, you know, that, that was kind of one of the other major uh, aspects of his, uh, you know, uh, going to New York and coming back. But he, he came out to uh, Western Canada in 1948, started his promotion initially up in Edmonton, which is where he was from. And at that time, I think he was running you know, kind of a wide spread territory that included Montana and Saskatchewan and parts of BC. So pretty, pretty broad based uh, promotion. And he kind of got his promotion started uh, right around that time and uh, had a lot of trials and tribulations, obviously, during that stretch. But, uh, he kind of got the promotion uh, pretty well launched and, uh, and it became like one of the very iconic promotions in the business. I think Stu was also one of the uh, charter members of the uh, National Wrestling Alliance, which was kind of the, the big organization. It was kind of a conglomerate of different wrestling promoters from all over North America, the, a lot of iconic types in retrospect, you know, these uh, Jim Crockett's and, you know, uh, Frank Tunney's and Don Owens and uh, Sam Muchnick's and a bunch of those guys. But, and uh, I think one of the main killers of the NWA back then was the world champion, which was Luthez, who was, you know, kind of a real killer for the NWA and had a great deal to do with just kind of, uh, kind of restoring the uh, perceived credibility, legitimacy, and uh, stability of the uh, wrestling business. Then they had a stretch back in that era where there was, uh, you know, a proliferation of gimmicks and contrived crap, you know, almost the point where they killed the business, you know, it was kind of an offshoot of the uh, gorgeous George and all like that, but they had a lot of promoters that were doing little or nothing, but you know, for want of a better term, bullshit, you know, and uh, Lufez was uh, probably one of the uh, 
biggest antidotes to that and they kind of uh, reestablished some credibility and uh, perceptible uh, legitimacy to the business during that era but uh, anyway uh, my dad you know with his amateur wrestling roots and all like that he was kind of a big proponent of uh, old school so to speak you know yeah. a lot of uh, emphasis on uh, this kind of amateur based and fairly legitimate old style wrestlers and he had a lot of guys that were uh, kind of uh, an embodiment of that you know uh, back in the 40s and 50s you know guys like Jim Wright and Rube Wright and uh, as I said before Luthez and Whipper Watson and I think my dad started a lot of guys who were kind of uh, along those lines Luther Lindsay's the George Gordienko's and the Gordon Nelson's and you know quite a few others that were you know pretty solid amateur wrestlers you know uh, and I think old Bowie Funk Sr. was up here a bit and uh, even the heels my dad had back in those days were guys like Jim Wright, Carl Wright and Mike Eakins and Johnny Valentine and uh, guys like that they're all uh, kind of pretty solid wrestlers whether you know that uh, was pretty fundamental uh, old school style regardless of whether they were heels or faces but uh, my dad sort of uh, was one of the uh, promoters that seemed to embody and typify old school wrestling and I think a lot of the guys my dad was you know a lot of the promoters my dad was most interactive with or uh you know, kind of uh, on the same uh, wavelength as were like that, you know, like the Sam Muchniks and the, uh, I think the guys in Minneapolis, the predecessors of Vern Gagne, the Tony Steckers and uh, Frank Tunney in Toronto and uh, there was quite a few others, you know, Sam Avey in Oklahoma and Doc Sarpolis down in Texas and Morris Siegel and I think the guys in, in California uh, I think there was a few others that were down there I think Cowboy Luttrell in Florida and uh, Hugh Nichols in California and all like that those, those are you know a lot of those names probably don't mean a, a lot to modern day <laughs> wrestling fans unfortunately yeah. it's kind of like Chairman Mao the WWE is kind of you know um, conveniently <laughs> rewritten the history books or you know uh, they would have you think that the wrestling business evolved from maybe uh, Hulkamania and stuff like that but uh, a lot of those guys amongst any of the old school fans or history historians all those names would probably mean a lot you know it'd be uh, I guess equivalent of maybe George Ellis and uh, 
you know, Vince Lombardi's and some of those iconic names from the NFL, you know, but unlike uh, the NFL, which kind of pays homage and glorifies those guys, uh, most of those names have been kind of written out of the history books, and, you, you know, you'd be under the impression that maybe uh, Hulk Hogan was the, uh, you know, the Adam and Eve of our business, that type of thing, you know, but... But anyway, uh, that was sort of a a brief, albeit a bit of a rambling. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of a con- condensation of my dad's uh, launching of Stampede Wrestling up here in um, Western Canada. And I think if nothing else, Stampede Wrestling was one of those kind of... Uh, yeah unique kind of unconventional cutting edge type places where uh, my dad was you know kind of generally predisposed to uh, having his own unique style up here it was kind of a you know not a copy or a clone or a a cheap imitation of something else who's and later on when I became Booker and up in my dad's territory, uh, I always felt kind of obliged to, you know, follow in that regard or almost chart our own course, you know, when I, I, uh, I guess I can segue into the uh, other part of our, you know, program which was kind of uh, Dynamite Kid and the uh, just kind of the uh, influence that he and some of the other guys of that era of the late 70s, early 80s you know uh, were responsible for you know so um, I had kind of grown up in the wrestling business as you can you know kind of gather, you know, I sort of rounded since I was a little kid, so I had uh, been around the dungeon and, you know, uh, around all these, uh, one of the guys that I mentioned before, the Lutherlidzies and the Gordienkos and the, uh, you know, the uh, Johnny Valentines and all those guys, and a big part of the dungeon is your listeners probably know was kind of uh, you know this uh, instilling of respect and uh, whatever for the wrestling business and part of that was you know the dues paying down in the dungeon where you had to go through all these uh, pretty you know uh punishing shooter types like my dad and Luther Lindsay and George Cornienko and Carl Gotch and uh, Gordon Nelson, people like that. And it wasn't for the faint of heart or the, uh, you know, <laughs> wimpy types, you know. Those guys would kind of, uh, my dad used to sardonically refer to them as like the three-headed dog at the gates of hell. You know, <laughs> to kind of go through that kind 
enough rite of passage. And uh, if you weren't up to it, you generally didn't uh, make it up in Calgary, but it was a big part of instilling respect in the wrestlers, which my dad felt was conducive to instilling respect in the fans. So it was a different era, as I said before, but uh, that was kind of, uh, you know, part of my kind of obligation, I guess, when I started booking up there was, uh, and I, I had a slightly different style or mindset than my dad as far as he was a little bit more into the uh, really conventional old school quasi-amateur wrestling. And um, I could understand the respect and the, uh, you know, the reason why he would be, uh, you know, endeavoring to go in that direction at the same time when I started booking the our territory was kind of a bit of a you know not not faring that well you know I'm not sure why if the wrestlers were not all that exciting or or whatever but uh I think my dad got to a point in the late 70s where business was pretty, you know, uh, sluggish and, and my mother was compelling him to get out of the business. And it was about 77, my dad actually cut a deal with some guys up in Edmonton called the Osborne Brothers to sell the business. and And... and he was, I guess, at that point, pretty much, you know, throwing in the towel. And um, at that time, I had already just graduated from university and all like that. And I, uh, I think at the beginning of 70, the end of 77, I was working to go into school teaching full time, but I had about a four, four or five month stretch there were my dad had shut, uh, announced that he was selling the business and I uh, I figured I'd do a bit of traveling and I think one of the old veteran wrestlers in our territory at that time a guy named John Foley who was uh, still working for my dad I told him I, I'd like to go over to England and uh you know, I've been kind of wanting to, you know, go over there and uh, just do a bit of traveling. And old Foley told me uh, you should see if you can get some uh, bookings wrestling over there to help pay your expenses. So he hooked me up with a promoter over there and. Um, I initially was just anticipating going over there to make a few bucks and uh, and I'll help pay some expenses, but um, the promoter over there, uh, somewhat to my surprise, you know, uh, 
had a lot of hype and hoopla arrived over there and had me, uh, you know, hyped as some kind of a, a cowboy type Mongo Bruce Hart or something like that over there. And um, I'm somewhat surprised, albeit flattered, you know, like I wasn't really going over there other than to maybe uh, make a bit of walking around money and all of a sudden they're giving me a pretty pronounced push as uh, some kind of a half star from North America or something like that. So, so anyway, uh, while I was over there, I remember I was in uh, some little town up in northern England and um, I remember this old, he reminded me of that uh, Burgess Meredith, the mech character in the Rocky movies, a guy named Ted Bentley. He came up to me in, in the dressing room and uh, I think this town was Lincoln or some such place. And uh, anyway, he told me he had a, you know, he, he told me he was friends with some of the uh, the British wrestlers who had uh, wrestled in North America. And my dad had kind of featured a lot of these, you know, pretty good workers in the in the seventies over there. People like Billy Robinson and Jeff Ports and Les Thornton and some of them. And uh, for some reason, the British seemed to think. Canada and North America was kind of like the land of milk and honey. Or they, I, I didn't, I didn't have the heart to tell them my dad was, you know, shutting the territory down or anything. But in any case, he told me that uh, he had this uh, young guy protege that he was training named Tommy, who uh, he claimed was. Uh, you know, kind of make people forget about Billy Robinson and all like this. <laughs> and it's kind of like somebody coming up and telling you that uh, they're going to make you forget about Michael Jordan or something like that. But anyway, I was, you know, uh, introduced to this Tommy, the guy that Ted Bentley was touting. Uh, and he, uh, I think, weighed about 145 pounds, which was about 60 pounds lighter than anyone in North America back then. And uh, and, and he was pretty skinny and uh, didn't say two words. You know, I'm not sure if he was acutely shy or, in retrospect, maybe a bit arrogant or whatever. But um, anyway, he introduced me to this Tommy and... He told me, uh, Ted Bentley told me this Tommy was uh, going to be wrestling later in the show and uh, asked me if I would, uh, you know, watch his match. And uh, and he, he told me that Tommy would be, uh, would love to go over to North America to wrestle for my dad. And when I first saw him, I was... You know, you know, not all that impressed. You know, pretty skinny and didn't seem that much personality or anything. But anyway, I 
when I watched his match and uh, it was about like uh, I mentioned to somebody else previously about like Barry Gordy watching Michael Jackson the first time <laughs> I was like you know completely uh, blown away by you know this skinny little uh, kid um, uh, he was doing stuff I had never seen before he, he, he seemed to have an incredible uh, you know style and the moves he was doing and it was like uh, all of a sudden I was you know, uh, and I, you know, I completely blown away just at the, uh, you know, the style and the, uh, it was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. And uh, I also found myself saying, damn, you know, it's a shame my dad's, you know, decided to shut the territory down because uh, this guy would be an incredible addition. And, um, Anyway, uh, I ended up uh, nonetheless calling my dad, and um, and I was just gonna get a, a feel on uh, what was going on. And uh, my dad told me the deal was still kind of—I hadn't even mentioned this to my kid thing yet—but my dad told me the uh, the deal with the Osborne brothers was still been up in the air because uh, they had had some financial problems or something like that. And anyway, to make a long story short, I, uh, I flew home just before Christmas that year and uh, found out the, uh, when I got back, I found that the, the deal to sell the promotion had fallen through and uh, my mother was just wanting my dad to get out of the business altogether. She was adamant that, you know, he was losing money and, you know, she had no desire to be staying in it. And my dad, uh, you know, uh, I think he was half pissed off with the Osborne brother thing and it's almost kind of like his, that was kind of his nature to you know, kind of go against the grain, but he, uh, in any case, vowed uh, to uh, keep the promotion going, and so suddenly I uh, saw the opportunity to, you know, try to pitch my dad on bringing this Tommy, the English kid, who they were now calling in England to kind of my kid, and. Uh,
back in England and arranged for a starting date for him. And uh, I remember the first week that he arrived, you know, uh, I had been touting him uh, and um, he finally arrived and as I said before, he weighed about 145 pounds and um, seemed to have little or no personality. He was, you know, didn't say two words to anyone and was pretty, uh, you know, kind of kept to himself and didn't, you know, kind of seem to have much personality or anything. But I think the very first night he was working that week he uh, worked with some old, uh, some old veteran who I think was on his way out, a guy named Norman Frederick Charles, who used to be called one of the Royal Kangaroos with the Portland Territory, but not a bad old worker. And at that point, nobody was really anticipating much um, as far as dynamite. You know, uh, it was kind of like intrigued when he headed to the ring that first night. And um, so he said before, it turned out, you know, uh, to be kind of like uh, the first time people set eyes on Michael Jackson or Elvis Presley or some dynamite completely uh, electrified the audience. And, uh, and, uh, my dad, even begrudgingly, even though he was kind of old school and, you know, I'd never really uh, seen much business in smaller guys, all of a sudden was, uh, you know, equally kind of impressed or blown away by this. And we ended up starting a, sort of a two divisions in the... Uh, at that time in uh, NWA, there's only a couple of territories that really featured so-called junior heavyweights. And one was Los Angeles, and there was a few, you know, places in, uh, in Mexico, and some of those places featured smaller guys. But most of the NWA or the old promoters in North America were uh, disdainful of smaller guys, and. Uh, I convinced my dad to start pushing the, uh, I think we called it the mid-heavyweight division. In any case, uh, there, there was some old, uh, pretty good old worker who was working in the States, and he was the uh, perceived NWA junior heavyweight champion at that time of game a guy named Nelson Royal and uh, I convinced my dad to bring him up to work and uh, we always had a big uh, kind of uh, biggest cards of the year up here were Stampede Week the, the big rodeo up here in July called the Calgary Stampede and uh, my dad would traditionally bring up the uh, NWA World Heavyweight Champion, which is usually like Harley Race or Dory Funk Jr. And, and uh, I convinced my dad to also bring up 
Nelson Royal that year to to work with Dynamite and um, I think that very same week uh, I think old Harley was up here working with uh, I can't remember who maybe uh, Larry Lane or something like that but anyway uh, Dynamite and Nelson Royal uh, stole the show and I think Nelson Royal was like blown away at this little skinny uh, English kid and uh and that, that seemed to really uh, solidify the uh, the territory. And uh, I mean, about a year later, my dad, even though my dad and I were never really on, on the same page around then on methodology, he was kind of an advocate of the bigger guys and uh, he had had a lot of success with a lot of these uh, guys like Archie the Stomper Goldie and Abdullah and um, John Quinn and these big Ox Baker types, you know, and we were all right, you know, uh, but, you know, decidedly different style and the Dynamite Kid and all like that. And, um, so uh, my dad kind of... Uh, allowed me to do the booking. It was about 1980 or thereabouts. And uh, I was kind of uh, more of an advocate of uh, speed and you know, a little faster, more explosive style. And uh, that became a hot ticket up here during that stretch with Dynamite, and then I all of a sudden started getting a lot of these uh, smaller, more dynamic guys wanting to come up and work for us, you know, and uh, some of the American guys that were coming up were people like Eric Embry and uh, Terry Sawyer and uh, uh, a guy named Dave Morgan, I think, who came up from L.A., even though he's originally from England. And, um, and I had uh, Dynam Dynamite had a cousin over in England who, uh, you know, was uh, just starting to get a little bit of traction over there. And there was a guy named David Smith, and uh, he had been begging me to come in as well, so I ended up bringing him in. I think right around that time there was Sugar Ray Leonard was a big boxing champion and he was having a big uh, fight with some British middleweight or light, uh, lightweight named Davy Boy Green and uh, that name sort of uh, made a bit of an impression on me so I changed uh, David Smith, I think in England he wrestled under the name of Young David, which to me was kind of a bland name too, so I gave him the name Davy Boy Smith, and uh, he came over and uh, he and Dynamite were initially uh, working against each other all the time. Dynamite was our top heel at that time, and he worked against me and Brett and my brother Keith and... Uh, and 
up feuding with Davy Boy, you know, Smith, and became a hot ticket as well. And, uh, you know, kind of, uh, I think right around that same time, uh, because of the uh, success and the, uh, the rave reviews, the middle, mid-heavyweights of the junior heavyweights were getting up in Canada. Um, the Japanese started uh, begging us to, as, like, also they were bringing me and Brett and Dynamite and Davey and uh, some of these guys over to Japan and uh, they were pushing a lot of these uh, smaller Japanese guys who uh, at that time Japan had been a predominantly heavyweight place with guys like uh, Sakaguchi and Antonio Inoki and Giant uh, Baba and guys like that but uh, and also all the Americans that went over there guys like Stan Hansen and Bruiser Brody and Abdullah the Butchers and Tiger Jeet Singh and all like that and but all of a sudden Dynamite became kind of a a mega attraction in Japan as well and also they were pushing these uh, smaller Japanese guys who uh, all, you know all of a sudden superseded the Inokis and the Sakaguchis and one of the biggest matches at that time in Japan was so uh Japanese guy named Sayama, who I think he had known dynamite a bit in Japan, but they put a mask on him and called him Tiger Mask, and, uh, and that that became the hottest ticket by far in Japan around that time. And then uh, all of a sudden, all these other little Japanese guys, including uh, Kichi Yamada, who later on became Jushin Liger and Hiroshi Hase, and uh, you know, uh, Kobayashi and a bunch of these guys became uh, overnight sensations in Japan, primarily because they worked with Dynamite. And I'm not to digress, but I think the thing that made Dynamite so good was, um, and I've said it many a time, any half-decent worker can get himself over that not that hard, but uh, the real hallmark of a truly great worker is this ability to get almost anybody you work with over, make them look ten times better than they have any right to look, or you know, kind of uh, you know, uh, take them to a another level, and uh, that that was. Uh, the real hallmark of the truly great workers, you know. Dynamite was one of the best I ever saw at that, you know. A few other American workers were in that genre, old Harley Race and Dorian Terry Funk and I heard back in the day Johnny Valentine and Buddy Rogers and uh, a few of those guys. They, that was what made them so... Uh, you know, and Ric Flair is another one that came to embody that, you know, kind of mindset where um, within the business, the boys 
understand and appreciate that capability. You know, the fans sometimes don't even realize that that's the real hallmark of the, the truly great workers is this innate ability to uh, make almost any guy they work with, including a lot of guys who are seemingly marginally talented are all of a sudden looking like world beaters once they get in the ring with those guys, you know, and uh, that, that was certainly one of the uh, attributes of Dynamite Kid that was, uh, you know, uh, second to none, really, you know, so, but anyway, that's kind of a long-winded uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it on, was. On the, uh, on Dynamite Kid and uh, to some degree the uh, uh, just the evolution and the rise of, or whatever of Stampede Wrestling. Yeah, um, also, um, let's talk about, you know, um, you know, like later on, you um, had uh, other uh, great talents in the dungeon as well, you know, from like, you know, Chris Benoit, Chris Jericho, Jake the Snake Roberts. And let's talk about how you uh, got to know Brian Pillman, Sr. Yeah, I, um, you know, as I said before, my dad kind of... uh gave me the uh, so-called Booker. I was kind of, uh, you know, the Booker up there in uh, Calgary in the uh, 80s. And uh, anyway, uh, somewhere in about 84 or thereabouts, my dad uh, was coerced into uh, selling the promotion to WWE which was kind of in the, uh, you know, launching the Hulkamania and all that, WrestleMania and all that, whatever, but any way to make a uh, long story shorter. Um, Vince McMahon kind of uh, never really followed through on the deal. You know, my dad ended up getting more or less screwed, so he... Uh, he started up again in 1985, and uh, he sent most of his top talent to, uh, as part of the abortive deal, he sent Brett and, and David Schultz and Honky Tonk and Bad News and Dynamite and Davey, who were the British Bulldogs then, and... Uh, Junkyard and a few other guys have all gone to WWE and uh, so I think around the latter part of 85 my dad uh, you know uh, much to my mother's chagrin decided to start up the promotion again and uh, most most of the top talent the guys I already mentioned had already gone to WWE and um, he kind of asked me to see if I could piece together a, a roster or a crew to uh, get the promotion off the ground. And my dad had a few old veterans that were kind of uh, kicking around um, guys like Duke Myers and Cuban Assassin and uh, 
John Foley and uh, I think he had an old guy that um, came from Louisiana named Rod Rod Starr who was not a bad worker and uh, my dad uh, had a few rookies that were just kind of getting their careers launched around that time including my brother Owen and um, my brother-in-law, a guy named Ben Basarab, and uh, Chris Benoit, who was kind of a, a huge fan from, from Edmonton, and I uh, had a huge fan of Dynamite Kid, I might add Benoit was, but right, right around that time, I was kind of watching, uh, I think, a few Japanese guys, that Jason Liger, uh, Hiroshi Aussie and uh, so around that time I got a, a call from one of the uh, guys on the football team a guy named Stu Laird who was like, one of the captains of the Calgary Stampeders football team up here he told me he had a, a guy who was actually playing on the uh, Stampeders at that time those times when these football players get in want to get into wrestling it's usually because they've just been cut <laughs> they've been <laughs> retired or they've been cut from the team or whatever and they go looking for a new you know a meal ticket after their football careers ended but anyway he told me this guy was a starting linebacker on the Stampeders but that he was uh a huge wrestling fan and wanted to get into wrestling and um, anyway he brought him out to the dungeon and that turned out to be Brian Pillman and uh, Pillman was starting linebacker on the Stampeders at that time but he uh, he told me he was willing to uh, you know uh, do wrestling and football at the same time and he and uh, the football team seemed to be okay with that, much to my surprise. So I think we had wrestling on Friday nights back in the uh, in Calgary back then, and uh, most times uh, football games on Saturdays or Sundays. So, somewhat to my surprise, they told me that uh, Tillman said the Stampeders would be okay with him wrestling they thought it might even be good for business so anyway uh, I spent a bit of time training Pillman he was down in the dungeon with Owen and, uh, and my brother-in-law Ben Basarab and uh, Chris on uh, a few other old I had a few other old that's, that would come down there as old Japanese guy named Mr. Hito and um, a few others and uh, it's not. Tillman uh, as a lot of people might uh, remember had a he seemed to have a, a pretty uh, charismatic albeit you know kind of annoying uh, personality you know he he had this raspy voice, but uh, he seemed to be uh, able to cut promos almost from the get-go, and he had a, a kind of a, 
know, uh, unique style right off the bat. And uh, I think right around that time, I, I was still like one of the main faces in the, in the promotion at that time. And uh, I think my brother Owen and Ben Benoit and uh, Bass Reb were among the top singles baby faces at that time. And so anyway, uh, Pillman and I ended up doing a, a tag team called Bad Company. And um, um, much to my satisfaction, it seems to take off right right from the get-go. You know, we kind of, uh, you know, became, it was kind of a unique uh, pairing where even though we were baby faces, essentially all we did was mostly heel type stuff and we were kind of bombastic and outlandish, you know, I had the black leather biker jackets and uh, the shades and uh, all like that and, uh, and it, uh, it was kind of like a forerunner of the uh, Rambo or the, you know, kind of, Mel Gibson was doing some of those kind of, you know, uh, outlandish good guys that did nothing, you know, kind of Clint Eastwood, Dirty Harry type roles. So, <laughs> Pillman and I uh, were Christian Bad Company, and essentially all we did was healing, but we were faces and we were kind of, uh, you know, uh, it was a bit, of a, a bit of a new role for me. And I, uh, funny enough, got over the Pillman was kind of like trash talking and, you know, kind of epitomized kind of arrogance and, and bombastic uh, outlanders behavior. But, uh, <laughs> It became a huge thing. It was, uh, I think, almost a few months after that, one of the big, big ticket items in the uh, states was uh, the World Warriors, who later on became the Legion of Doom. But they were kind of, you know, more or less faces. But all they did was kind of kick ass, and they had a, you know, what a rush and all that stuff. Yeah. And, uh, so, you know, Bad Company with Pillman became a uh, hot ticket up there, and uh, we, uh, you know, we, we had a lot of success up there in, in Stampede, you know, I think we were working a lot with uh, this big, he was kind of a big, obnoxious heel named Mike Shaw, who, um, we did a lot of business with him and um, a guy named Barry Orton, who was Randy Orton's uncle. He he had a gimmick as a Zodiac and him and uh, another heel named Jason the Terrible that was kind of a forerunner of The Undertaker and uh, it became a hot ticket up there as Jason and Zodiac. And uh, we had a few other uh, Another pretty good heel named Lethal Larry Cameron, who I think Eddie Sharkey sent up here, and and it all seemed to gel. You know, we had a pretty good run with uh, Bad Company and those guys, and Owen seemed to be, uh, you know, uh, an instant smash success up there uh, right around that time. You know, he was kind of uh, 
that face and Benoit kind of uh, became a pretty hot commodity too and the little Japanese guy Jushin uh, Liger was hitting his stride up there around that time and um, it all evolved into a pretty uh, you know uh, successful uh, you know promotion you know and I'm I'm really proud that a lot of those young guys from that genre kind of uh, evolved into becoming cutting-edge huge stars and uh, later on in the WWE, including Owen and Benoit and Liger and Pillman and, uh, and some of the Japanese guys around that time, you know, and um, so it was kind of a... Uh, you know, I was really proud of the, uh, you know, the evolution of that group of guys, you know, given that it was kind of uh, pretty meager beginnings and uh, we were struggling to get the uh, promotion up and running again and, you know, evolved into uh, some of the best workers of that era. That's per- that's pretty awesome. Now let's talk about another thing. I know this is kind of a little touching subject with you too, um, you know, involving uh, you know Vince McMahon. Um, let's talk about you know how uh, you know he you know screwed your brother Brett, the whole you know Owen, Owen Hart incident, and then also um, stealing some ideas what you guys were doing in wrestling matches up in Canada. Yeah, it's been a little you know I. Uh you know, a lot of it's been well documented or it's been speculated and obviously a lot of pretty uh, hot button, delicate, uh, you know, highly controversial uh, things, you know, and I guess the Montreal Screwjob, which is... Uh, one of the first ones I certainly wasn't I wasn't involved in that but nonetheless uh, I, I, uh, as a booker myself and as you know wrestler I, I I still have no idea what the rationale there was you know if you, if you want somebody to drop a damn belt you ask him you know, you don't mince words or beat around the bush or, uh, you know, perpetrate any illicit horseshit like that, you know, and uh, not only for your relationship with that wrestler, but, you know, it, it doesn't uh, instill any uh, respect or you know, kind of confidence in the other wrestlers if you're perpetrating things like that. It, uh, you know, makes other wrestlers obviously kind of wondering if they're going to be subject to some similar transgression. So, you know, uh, I uh, still uh, find it hard to defend or you know, accept any justifiable explanation 
screw job, but that um, uh, I've never really uh, ever received or heard a, you know what I perceive to be a legitimate explanation for that. You know, um, and that's how they can appreciate. dissatisfaction with that whole thing. Although I might add, you know, uh, it's obligatory whenever they put a damn belt on you, regardless of WWE or AEW or wherever. You know, uh, you know, it goes without saying if and when they want you to drop the damn thing, uh, you're obliged to do so. You know, you're not, uh, you know, it's just what it is, you know, it's, so, you know, I, uh, I've still never heard a, uh, a, a valid uh, explanation for, uh, you know, if Brett was, you know, I heard that Brett was supposedly uh, planning on going to, WCW or some such thing at that time. If such was the case, you know, uh, we go without saying, you know, it's, uh, he's obliged to drop the damn belt. You know, and any wrestler that uh, is planning on leaving a promotion that's obligatory to drop the damn belt, you know, and anything less. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it would be uh, unprofessional and, uh, you know, and unacceptable. So, so yeah, I, 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 uh, I'm not sure if I'm digressing here or not, but I, I didn't, uh, I never could fathom, you know, the whole Montreal screw job to me was more of kind of like uh, where you're rolling your eyes and saying, uh, surely they could have done this thing better on all parts, you know, and, uh, and, uh, it was more of an embarrassment than a black eye for the business and didn't, uh, engender any respect in any way, shape, or form for any of the, uh, people that were involved in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very true. Um, there was like so many speculations about that, and I, and I totally agree with you what you just said. Um, and then um, let's talk about you know how you guys had certain ladder matches and other matches you did way before uh, WBF did over in Stampede. Yeah, Stampede was always a very very uh, kind of. Uh, cutting edge, you know, uh, ahead of its time promotion. Uh, uh, and I, uh, the latter matches evolved in Stampede uh, back in the 70s. I, I remember I was, uh, I think there was a, he was pretty uh, progressive and had a pretty, you know, uh, business-like approach to the business, a guy named Dan Crawford, and he uh, initially uh, conceived of the ladder matches up here in uh, 
the mid-70s, uh, I think the initial stipulation when they had the first ladder match was, I think, Carl said who was a face in this heel named Tor Kamada, and they uh, made some stipulation they were going to hang $10,000 from the... Uh, Raptors or whatever, and he had to uh, climb the ladder. And uh, Crawford, being the babyface, claimed if he won them ten thousand, was going to throw it all out into the crowd and uh, that kind of thing. But that was the uh, first ladder match, and then uh, we used to have them on occasion. You know, uh, later on we you know, kind of got where we were hanging a belt up there. And uh, we did that a number of times in, over the years, you know, from the 70, mid-70s onward. And it was about uh, 10 or more years after that, Brett was in the WWE and he, uh, I think, ran the idea by Vince. I'm not sure... Uh, I remember who the first guys that did it in the WWE. They uh, did it on one of the maybe WrestleManias or one of the pay per views, and it became a big hit. And uh, they sort of followed suit, but it was definitely a Calgary thing. I remember when I was booking in the uh, early 80s up in Calgary, I. Uh, I had two heel factions, uh, um, one of which was predominantly Japanese guys, uh, a guy named Georgia Tucano, who was called the Cobra, and Hiro Saito, and uh, this big bald-headed chap heel named Ozawa, better known as Killer Khan, and uh, I had this heel manager named Wakamatsu. So I had a, a faction of about six or eight guys who were all mainly Japanese heels and the, the uh, other heel faction was managed by the soul J.R. Foley and that was like Dynamite Kid and Duke Myers and Kerry Brown and a bunch of these guys but in any case I had two heel factions and we had the baby faces which was like Brett and Dynamite and I mean Brett and Baby Boy and myself and other Leo Bark and them and uh, kind of uh, one time uh, shot some kind of an angle between uh, I think it was initially Dynamite Kid who was part of J.R. Foley's faction of heels and this Georgie Tucano who was part of this uh, Japanese heel faction and uh, and Davy Boy who was uh baby face and uh, so I set up some angle and became you know those three in the match and I initially uh, called it the B Bermuda Triangle match which was uh, I, th I thought uh, you know there was some more about the Bermuda Triangle being uh, kind of <laughs> you know uh, haunted or something like that or whatever but anyway uh, 
now the whole thing was uh, the two heel factions hated each other's guts, the Japanese and Foley's, and the faces were at odds with both heel factions, so there was a lot of intrigue as to who might screw who, you know, whether two heels would gang up against Davy Boy or whether Davy and Dynamite, who were heel and face, would, you know, kind of join up against the Japanese or whatever. And that was kind of the beauty of it, was you didn't know who was uh, going to uh, kind of, uh, you know, join up to kind of screw the other. And um, that that became a hot ticket. And we, we did it a number of times later on over the years. And uh, we always kind of endeavored to, uh, you know, have the two heel factions and the uh, baby face and that was kind of the uh, the main attraction of it you know is you weren't sure who was gonna mm-hmm. screw who or whatever and uh, um, it was 10 or more years later WWE uh, I, I think they got the idea from Brett again and they uh, you know started calling it the triple threat which I didn't think was actually as good a name as the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah. But, uh, it's become kind of a, a hot ticket, almost overdone down there, I might add, but uh, it's become a very successful, uh, you know, uh, match down there. You see them quite regularly, so. Um, I guess irritation is the most sincere form of flattery, so I guess I should be flattered that, uh, ladder matches and triple matches uh, have both become mainstay attractions in WWE and not, uh, not that they're ever giving us any royalty checks or anything like that you know but uh, right. um, as Casey Stengel used to say you could look it up you know and uh, you know, uh, find that it's you know verifiable or you know true all right, Bruce, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story with me. Um, I had a blast. Well, my pleasure. You know, as I've said before, I wish there was uh, more journalists, uh, you know, people like yourself who were uh, paying homage respectfully to the business and helping to preserve and perpetuate the uh, legacy and the... Uh, propriety of our business, you know, there was uh, more people like you who uh, are engendering respect and, uh, you know, kind of uh, paying homage to some of the people that devoted their lives and their blood, sweat, and tears to upholding the propriety and respect of the business and so too often overlooked, so... I thank you for, uh, you know, the role that you're playing in that regard, and uh, I'd be more than happy to oblige you any time if you ever want to, you know, uh, discuss other aspects of Stampede or whatever else. I definitely will, because I love, you know, uh, hearing stuff uh, when wrestling was actually good and fun back in the day. But like I said, it was an honor to have you on. And everybody else? Yeah. Like, for some reason, not, but I, uh, as I said before, I appreciate the uh, Vine as 
they stay in. So <laughs> keep up the good work, and uh, I'll uh, look forward to talking to you in the near future. Yeah, me too. And everybody else, have a great weekend. And thank you for listening to Wrestle Podcast. This is Robin Nelson and Bruce Hart.